the thing that I've learned from a lot of these is that great powers tend to misbehave, no oh, yeah. matter where they are. Welcome back to another episode of Strong Municipal Libraries podcast, All Booked, where we talk to you about books we'd like to recommend. And Jake is bringing us a book with a title that's basically the retort to Things Can't Get Any Worse. Uh, remind me what the exact title is, The though. exact title is Things Are Never So Bad That They Can't Get Worse, and it's by William Newman. All right. <laughs> so... How bad is the novel? Could it get worse? Well, it's so it's it's this is nonfiction and it's uh, it's it it kind of seems like it can't. But I don't really know. Um, (laughs) It's 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 an account of this is a reporter who has lived uh, in Venezuela through um, Hugo Chavez's death and into some of the uh, presidency or reign rule of Nicolas Maduro. Um, and so he sort of, for the uninformed, um, when Chavez died, a, a couple of things also happened. I guess I should start off and say that, like, the book is predicated on describing an economic situation that is based, it's called um, the resource curse. And a lot of people know Venezuela has huge oil reserves. Um, they just happen to have a lot of oil there. Um, and it is in some ways a boon. That's a resource that a ton of people really want. But what tends to happen in economies that are dominated by one resource is that the 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 economy fluctuates wildly between boom and bust periods. Yeah. Um, so there when Chavez was in office, China was beginning its huge ascent, like, you know, um, like. 20% growth every year and stuff like that. But ever since um they've they're now seeing more modest, slightly normal growth like 6% or something like that. And as a result, um oil prices have not kept a pace and the Venezuelan economy has just cratered. Um to the point where the sort of dramatic the big dramatic thing that you can point to is about 6 million people out of 30 million have left Venezuela. Wow. Um so like one out of every five people just had to leave the country because there was no other option. Um, so he sort of, it, it, he's a reporter, so he does describe the, the like, political goings-on, but then there's also a lot of just, like, profiles of sort of ordinary people who are living with that situation. So it's a good kind of mix of, um, like, just figuring out what happened and then also sort of seeing into some of the personal circumstances of people who are affected by these things. All right. So how about you walk us through one of the everyday stories that's captured? Yeah. Um, so someone he talks about someone who they had a steady job. They they worked at a hotel. I can't quite remember what the exact role was, um, but they she showed up to work one day and literally just everything had been stolen, like taken the copper wires out of the air conditioning units. Um, and then also just it got it was what really upset her was that they they stole everything yes but then what they couldn't take they just destroyed um which is like why (laughs) she was like why even do that like i understand if you need to resell things but like why why all the just pointless destruction and the you know that a lot of people are driven to this looting because um 
I, I looked it up. There's there's I don't understand macroeconomics enough to understand what kind of scam they were doing. But one of the ways that you can actually make money in Venezuela is by importing items over invoicing for them. So like saying that, that they're worth as much higher than what they are and then eventually turning it into dollars, okay. U.S. dollars. Okay. Um, but I checked today. The result of that is hyperinflation. Um, and today, the one uh, Venezuelan Bolivar is worth point zero 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 two zero two one one dollars. Whoa! Uh, and it's, this is not like a yen currency, yeah. where you're where it's like, oh, a thousand, yeah, that's a dollar, that's normal. That's this is mm-hmm. not normal. <laughs> so, so it's um, it's a it's a rough, it's a very rough economic situation that is exacerbated both by um an authoritarian government and a and you know this sort of uh single resource economy that has sort of just really made the situation quite miserable there wow yeah so in in this book does he seem to have the perspective that it could get worse in venezuela or is this the worst that he's talking about in the title um so we don't really know. So the other thing that the other thing to consider is that um, it is an authoritarian government, but the National Assembly. And so it, he tracks because Chavez was in power for many years and he sort of had good fortune. He also was very media savvy um, and he go, he makes a point of kind of saying like he used to host this television program called Allo Venezuela. Um, wherein he would um, get these media people that he didn't like and then would sort of nationalize their companies and then fire them on air. Um, this is And this is years before, because he draws the comparison, this is years before The Apprentice came out and Donald yeah. Trump did the exact same thing. It's just kind of an entertaining thing to watch and people really ate it up. Um, and then Chavez died oil prices sank and then maduro took power a lot of the people who were totally behind chavez uh they don't think the same they don't have the same sort of hero worship for maduro um so he's not he doesn't have quite as strong of a grip on the sort of political establishment mm-hmm. and that's uh something else that he mentioned too is like Maduro is nominally the president, but he does not have nearly the same control. They have essentially uh, the equivalent of a CIA um, that does not answer to him. Uh Um, So the government is more fragmented. So even if we were to some if Maduro were to somehow fall out of power, he whoever takes over would still be sitting on a Chavista government. Like, it's it's not it's not really a situation where you just cut the head off and then everything is better. Mm -hmm. Um. So then he also gets into, at one point around like 2018, they were still functional enough that the opposition actually took over the National Assembly, the Congress. Mm -hmm. Um, So, and if you can remember, this is, this was a news story. There was, um, Juan Guaido was named interim president of Venezuela by some quirk in their constitution. And they were working this stuff out to make him become president and then he declared himself president um but before he could even do that the u.s claimed support for him as a president um and there 
it's not actually a good thing for that to happen um, in Latin America. I can imagine. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's sort of um, there's there's a history um, of the U.S. meddling in Latin American affairs. So the and other countries. That, yeah, exactly. No, but <laughs> yeah. the second that we sort of like stuck our finger in the pie, they were like, "This guy's he's U.S. backed. Like, forget it." And so that really turns the population against him. And then it was not helped by the fact that like. He's a he, Juan Guaido is probably a good guy, but he made some poor decisions. Um, there was one I remember reading this news story and just thinking it was wacky. Um, but he signed a contract for a, just a U.S. private ex-military contractor to stage some kind of like invasion and kidnapping. This guy had done like security for events before. Um but Juan Guaido signed the contact contract to hire this guy to come in, kidnap Maduro, and stage an overthrow of the Venezuelan government. Um, and it was like three guys on a boat that were apprehended. And then they found this contract and they were able to use it to just basically say, like, look, this guy is in bed with the Americans. Like, he's he's no good. So it it, it I don't know if there is enough like discourse in the country for people to be like maduro's not it like this guy is not this is not working obviously mm -hmm. um but there's not yet any kind of alternative like around the corner because it we almost had something and then it just it wasn't working um and the we the other thing to consider especially now in light of what's happening is um the Obama administration had tried a certain kind of like rapprochement with uh, Chavez um, and nothing was really happening there. Um, then the Trump administration took over and they tried a maximum pressure campaign of sanctions. Um, and sanctions are just very, it's very hard to tell if they're working. Right. Um, because they can do things to an economy, um, but then you don't really know whether it's political alienation on like a global stage or whether it was the sanctions that drive change if change does occur and what they do do especially in this kind of maximum pressure situation is they make life absolutely miserable for the people living in the country right um so they don't really unless they're very targeted on individuals who are being bad actors then they don't make the sanctioning country popular, <laughs> right. they, they, you know, um, so that's just something to like think about. They are a tool that can be used, but he sort of this author said that a lot of this maximum pressure stuff was really to win electoral points in Florida <laughs> because um, with the large population of both Venezuelan and Cuban immigrants in Florida, um, you know, sort of being tough on these authoritarian leftist governments just it plays well mm -hmm. so that's sort of how he saw it working out um so it's just something interesting it's pretty rare that you see like foreign policy influencing um american elections but that yeah. is one very specific case where it happens and we just have to think about it i guess does the author examine any potential ways that Venezuela could climb out of the hole it's in right now? I know it's a very complex situation. Yeah. Um, I don't really know. He seemed to put a lot of faith in there was sort of this. Um, 
I can't remember. I think there was a third country. It might have been Bolivia, uh, but Canada and Peru. When um, Guaido was um, was attempting to sort of declare himself president, um, they there were there were there was influence from these other American, meaning just you know our hemisphere, um, or I guess what am I trying to say? Our continent. North American? Well, it, no. it was Canada, Peru, and Bolivia, oh, I think. Oh, okay. So, so like, a yeah, New World, I guess that's yeah. what I'm trying to say. <laughs> um, these uh, New World countries, um, to, they just, you know, nobody's mad at Canada. Right. <laughs> it's very hard to be mad at Canada. It's true. So, um, he seemed to place a lot of faith in, in sort of these, these, these non-American powers, um, uh, being a sort of a positive influence, even if the, what they want is exactly the same as what we want, mm-hmm. it's just they they have they're less tainted yeah. <laughs> historically speaking. Um, so it's possible that some um very multilateral um external pressures could do something in Venezuela. It's also possible, um. The hope when Guaido was in office that was that the um, the military would take some action because, I mean, even if they are on payroll and doing OK, they're living in a country that's just falling apart. Um, so and as I mentioned, the government is kind of fragmented. So it's possible that, you know, most coups don't go well, but maybe a good coup could happen. <laughs> it's one of those situations where it's like there's not I don't there's not at this point also. Maduro has um, there were there were elections where, you know, the National Assembly could be led by the opposition and then they stopped. Like So elections are now are now just completely fraudulent. Um, So, yeah, not a lot in the solutions. Uh, He seems very intent on saying that the U.S. should be more hands off. That's the only thing that he sort of offers as like advice, um, basically. But yeah. Does he also examine, because this would be interesting from a reporter's standpoint, how information is disseminated to the population in Venezuela? Yes, um, he does. The the so he talks about um, how media were consolidated um, under the state. And I can't quite remember all of the details of it, but essentially there is not there's just not a lot of independent media left either. Um, so. I don't think they have the same kind of like great firewall as like a China or maybe a Russia might have. But um, at least in terms of like established media, television and that kind of stuff, they are all essentially state controlled. Yeah. Okay. Do you think this is accessible for someone who doesn't have a lot of background knowledge on like the political history of South America? Um, For sure, because he goes all the way back to like you might not know everything you know you might not know about pinochet and allende or perone and the rest of all this all the stuff that we went and stuck our fingers in down there but he at least talks about you know the establishment of venezuela as a country spanish colonial rule simon bolivar doing all that stuff so it's a pretty thorough history in addition to being sort of a more current affairs type of book so you don't you you are given the context you could Mm -hmm. show up to this 
with absolutely no knowledge and still sort of understand what's going on for sure. So I know you read a large volume of nonfiction. Mm -hmm. What is on your next to read list? So um, what I am reading right now is um, it's called Indelible City by Louisa Lim, I want to say. It is a history of Hong Kong. For for that story, fortunately, the British are mostly the bad guys, so you don't have to feel quite as bad. <laughs> and, well, in, in present day, the Chinese as well. So the thing is, the thing that I've learned from a lot of these is that great powers tend to misbehave, no oh, yeah. matter where they are. Oh, That's, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Not surprising at all. Yeah. Uh, do you find these books either through reviews or do you just kind of be like, hey, I haven't really read about this country yet. I'm going to go for it. Um, this one in particular. Um, so I had been eyeing it. Lisa Coker mentioned that she was reading it, and then I saw a Times review for it. A lot of these I get, um, I just, like, I read the Times. Well, nowadays I kind of just browse the headline lines of the Times. But for books, book reviews, it is still kind of, like, one of the most prolific sources out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and this one had a good review in the Times, as does the sort of Hong Kong one. So that's okay. that's how I do most of my discovery, yeah. Do you wait till you have more than one source, like a Lisa Coker and Times review? <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, it, or is it just if it's in the Times? I will sometimes, like, I will go to, I will go to the Times, and then sometimes um, I will go to Lit Hub's bookmarks, mm-hmm. if you know that, um, and just see what the people are saying. I don't, there are some things, like, I do often find myself agreeing with book critics mm-hmm. like music critics no i apparently just listen to pure trash um, <laughs> it's okay I do but too. yeah yeah and movie critics sometimes but i do tend to agree with book critics most of the time not all mm-hmm. the time but yeah and there are some particulars that i like perul seagal who writes for the times i i like pretty much everything that she likes so okay. yeah all righty well thank you so much for educating katie and me and our listeners <laughs> <laughs> i hope it wasn't too uh, oh no it's very too fascinating bookish. <laughs> no too it bookish. was yeah very good <laughs> and stay tuned next week for more fantastic book recommendations Bye. all right Bye.